Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. We're so happy to welcome Brooklyn-born photographer David Montgomery to our show. David, who is living in London since many years, is one of the most legendary photographers of all time, capable to mix art, fashion, music, cinema, and pop culture. He's a regular contributor to Vogue, The Sunday Times, The Telegraph, The New York Times, Rolling Stone, and many more. In this interview, David shares extraordinary stories from his long career, memorable meetings with interesting people, we talk about talent and creativity, the influence of jazz, divine inspiration, and the role of spirituality in his work. This time, Art Insiders New York is taking a detour to London. Art Insiders London, in other words. And we're so happy to welcome David Montgomery to our show. I'm here in your beautiful home in Chelsea, and we're going to have a little chat about photography. Oh, yeah. And for full disclosure, David's wonderful son, Max, who is also a very successful photographer in Los Angeles, is married to my daughter, Matilda. So this is not only the London edition of the podcast, it's also the family edition. Right. 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 Welcome to the show, David. Now... I went to a Chris Bode concert in New York right before Christmas on the Blue Note. You are a jazz musician, so you know the place very well. After the concert, I went to the Groove Bar a couple of blocks down the road. Mm. And on that wall, they have a collage of iconic LP covers. And yours, with all the naked women... Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix was right in the middle of it. And I took that as a sign that I need to get in touch with David Uh and figure out how do you become a successful photographer. Now, how did that cover come about? You might say chance. You might might say, I believe in that. Um, I was in the right place at the right time. And what happened was I worked a lot for the Sunday Times magazine, Color Magazine, which was the hottest thing going. I think now maybe Parry Match uh, is a slight continuation of it, but the Sunday Times took no prisoners. If the photographer went to take a picture of anybody, it wouldn't matter who they were. If the photographer did not like that person, that person was in trouble. Because mm. they might not show them in a very loving light, yeah. like you would see in Vogue magazine or something. They would show, show, shoot it as it was. Yeah. So you wouldn't get a guy like Don McCullen, who's an English photographer, who's a great war photographer, go take a picture of a statesman, and the statesman's a bit of an asshole. Don would show it like that. Yeah. Me too. And that's and that it got published. But anyway, so I worked with the art department. And the wonderful thing about the art department was whatever shooting I did, I only sent my choices. It would be about maybe three or four pictures out of 50 that I did. And they would go with that. Mm. Well, anyway, art director there, his name was David King. He called me up and he said, there's a pop singer, a rock guy in town, an American guy, and Linda McCartney 
had taken a cover shot of him and they don't like it. They think it's rubbish. Yeah. And it, what it was was a, two kids, a white child and a black child. You know? yeah. Linda McCartney took this picture and we don't like it. The, the record company doesn't like it. So I want you to take a picture of uh, 25, 30 girls for the cover. Yeah. I said, okay, so I'm free after seven. Yeah. Fine. So then the next thing he says is, uh, he calls me up and he says, because um, I used to do a lot of group shots, 50 yeah. people, 100 people, yeah. 20 people. Yeah. And doing that, I'll just say this, you can cut it out. Yeah. Or you want. yeah. But, you know, you think, oh my God, that's a lot of people to, you go here, you there. Uh, but somehow or other, you just leave it to fate and you just gently corral them into situation. So he says, oh, look, uh, do you mind? They're going to be topless. I said, I don't care. Anyway, there comes the day of the shooting. They come down, and uh, a lot of girls. And uh, But just remember, I was a fashion photographer. Besides that, I was used to being around semi-naked women, naked women all the time, because when you shoot fashion... Girls are changing. Yeah. You go in the dressing room. Yeah. You have to have an um, uh, ambience of your, yourself that these girls mean nothing. Yeah, exactly. Which they don't. They're yeah. just bodies that are filling up the clothes. Yeah. And you're not attracted to anybody, mm. which wasn't necessarily the case, yeah. but it's uh, like being a doctor exactly. or something. So you, and they picked that vibe up very quickly, mm -hmm. so I never had a problem with that. Yeah. So the girls came into the studio, and they all kind of sprawled out, and um, I took a Polaroid of it, and I showed it to them, mm -hmm. the art director. Mm -hmm. And they look, and they look, and they say, no good. I said, well, what? What's no good? They say, they've got their knickers. Yeah. They're on the pants. Yeah. they got their underpants on. Take it off. Yeah. So I said, well, that's going to be tricky because I'm a commercial photographer. Yeah. And you just don't want to have a bunch of uh, women's parts staring at you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah. And I, so I said, uh, okay. They say to the girls, can you take your underwear off? And mm -hmm. they all said, no. Mm -hmm. Now they all got paid seven pounds each. Mm -hmm to be in the picture. They found these girls in nightclubs. They, say. Mm -hmm. they said, no, no. Mm -hmm. So they said, we'll give you three more pounds to take your underwear off. Yeah. So all of a sudden, it's like a movie. These knickers were flying off <laughs> to the side of the, the set. While they were doing that, they, they said to me secretly, Hendrix is not coming down. The point was, he was supposed to be in there with the girls around him. Oh, I see, I see. They yeah. said, we just got a message, he's not coming. <laughs> That's why you'll see some of the girls are holding an album. They said, give the girls these albums to hold. And I said, that's going to look stupid. Yeah. They said, do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I did it. So um, that was it. I took the picture and... Uh, the rest is history. The, yeah. the only other interesting thing is that because I was shooting on a film called Kodachrome, yeah. now Kodachrome was a film made by Kodak that was the best film ever, color film. Mm -hmm. And after you shoot it, you got a little bag and a 
tube mm-hmm. and you sent it to Kodak mm-hmm. and they developed the pictures and mm-hmm. you get it back mounted in a cardboard mount yeah. so you could put it in a slide projector yeah. like that. Yeah. You never knew the exact correct exposure, mm-hmm. especially I had girls of all different shades of white, pink, and black. So I took the same picture four times, mm-hmm. four different exposures from very light to very dark. This way, even if my camera was a little bit broken, I would get the right exposure. Yeah. Hopefully, when I got the right exposure, everybody's eyes were open. So I used to shoot like this all the time because you'd never know uh, how skin, like my skin and yours, mine is yellower than yours. Yeah. Irish people have pink, pink in their thing. Anyway, I won't go into the details yeah, yeah. of it. Interesting. So anyway, the pictures came out and they were great and the correct exposure looked beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful. Looked like an ad for Johnson's baby powder. So <laughs> two months later, I go to see the art director. He says, oh, I'll show you the picture. Yeah. And I looked at the cover and it was all dark and murky. And I said... What happened to the, the picture? It's all yeah. dark. Yeah. He said, yeah, because your correct exposure yeah. was too good. <laughs> we wanted it to look murky, oh, I see. rock and roll. Yeah. So he picked a darker exposure. I see. And that's how it happened. I mean, I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. So that, that was it. And that, that picture yeah. is, is my... Uh, Insurance, old age insurance policy. That's great. Yeah, of course, that sells all the time and the price is going up, the value on it. Wow. So, so David, you have you have photographed uh, a long list of people. I mean, I could spend half an hour yeah. uh, reciting all of them. Right. Uh, one of my favorite uh, thing uh, stories that I that I learned was that you came to Margaret Thatcher and you opened the door and stepped into the room and you said, "I'm here to shoot the prime minister." Yeah. And I guess that uh, that <laughs> caused yeah. some disturbance. Well, no, not not for English people. <laughs> take all that in their stride. Yeah. But, yeah. but I'm interested in, you do not really um, interact with people that you're going to shoot. Mm. Uh, and, and that you are, you have a background in music and in jazz, uh, so you yeah. like to improvise, improvise. and use uh, the That's magic it. of the moment. So, That's right. <clears throat> so how do you prepare then? I mean, do you, do you read up on no, the person in no, question? No, I don't know what they do. Oh, well, I mean... I'm told this one's a scientist, this yeah. is a nuclear scientist, this yeah. is a, a prime minister, but I really don't know. I've shot five prime ministers, so yeah. I really don't know what their <clears throat> what their stance is on anything. And yeah. I really don't want to know because yeah. I want to be completely impartial. Yeah. And if uh, you can vibe people out very quickly, yeah. you soon learn after. Oh, of course... If you go to somebody and it's in their environment, yeah. already you get a feeling of these people. I mean, some prime ministers especially, you think, how can they live in this surroundings where the furniture is horrible or the yeah. wallpaper? Or I've been with orchestra leaders, famous symphonic leaders, and they had like two different wallpapers on the wall, and my eyes were going... <laughs> Sideways. Yeah, but obviously he was audio, not visual. Yeah. But 
Yeah, you you know, to take a good picture, I think that's it's like a guitarist, a good guitarist, you know. He might have several guitars that he plays to get different sounds, yeah. but it's kind of like that with the camera, different lenses or yeah. different thing, but it's kind of uh, hard to explain. Sometimes I try and relate it to a sexual experience mm-hmm. without the sex, mm-hmm. but that two strange people could meet yeah. and have this experience and then never see each other again. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like that, yeah. that you have a kind of intimate thing or maybe it's not intimate or the, maybe the person you're photographing doesn't realize what I'm making them do. Yeah. Take a picture of somebody the very beginning when they're really nervous is the best. Yeah. Or sometimes 15 minutes later after I wear them down, yeah. I completely kind of strip them down yeah. in a mentally and physical way and how their body language is. Just just a slight movement of an elbow or a nose or a thing to the camera because this is going to come off to be on a piece of paper that you look at. So it's like a silent movie, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. very much like a silent movie. And So do you have any, is is it like a a therapy session or is it more like you're puttering around, you're doing your stuff and then you are looking for something? What are you looking for? Well, it's hard to put into words, you know, but you know when it's right. I hear like a bell go off in my head (laughs) where you've taken this person and sort of immortalized them. Now, I didn't make this up. I mean, I have many heroes whose work I look at and people I admire so that I always had a roadmap of what would might be good and what might not be could be bad. Yeah. How bad could be good. One of the things I do is I let the people know that I'm kind of nervous mm-hmm. and I'm just a human being. Yeah. And I'll say, this is a new camera. I don't know how to work it. <laughs> well, stuff like that. Yeah. Which sometimes is true. Yeah. And I would say, I don't know how to work this camera yet. I just got it. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So you have these sort of icebreakers. Yeah. But there are people that they don't melt. There are some people that are photogenic, yeah. but there are other people that aren't photogenic. And I had a photograph of the president of Procter & Gamble or something like that. Yeah. And he was a real tough cookie. Yeah. And I said to him, you think you could smile a bit? And he said, <laughs> well, I am smiling, you know. <laughs> so... I, I read somewhere that Barbara Streisand was one of your more tougher clients. Yeah, I was going to mention her. <laughs> but I was young then, yeah. and we did something that probably got her off. First of all, in all fairness to her, if I look back in history, she was pregnant. Yeah. I didn't know it. she was getting divorced mm-hmm. or having a bad time with Elliot Gould, who did come over when we were shooting, so there was all that going on. Yeah. We brought music with us, mm-hmm. and it, it, I remember we were playing Sonny and Cher mm-hmm. and Wilson Pickett and Otis Redding. That's great. And I don't think she dug it, you uh-huh. know. We played pop music. Yeah, yeah. And 
I guess she thought, why aren't you playing my music? Some people like that. I photographed Neil Sedaka. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, I brought all my music for to, to play. Yeah. Okay, you want it? You got it. You know, it's a funny thing about, like, I don't think I take great pictures of people in my family mm-hmm. or they don't like it, but they're very close to me. So yeah. I, I, it, it's hard to do. See, I take pictures also for myself. So all the time I did all these other things. Mm. I always took pictures for myself, like on a weekend. Yeah. Or I'd walk around on the street. Yeah. So my heroes were people like Robert Frank and Gary Winograd. You can look them up mm-hmm. and see what the street photographers. Yeah. And that's what I wanted. I could mix everything that I learned on the street, shooting, lighting. Mm-hmm. I could mix that with what I did in the studio. Yeah. So each fed off each other. So the people that you photographed, I mean, I, I can also imagine that some of them turned into friendship for life. That you met at this random occasion yeah. and something happened in that relationship. Very few. Very few. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The reason being that I am working. I am a representative of a newspaper or yeah. a magazine. Yeah. You don't go in and start pulling any funny tantrums. So I have to seemingly be a gentleman. Yeah. You know, I might not tell a lot of jokes and everything because I'm also trying to work out what am I going to do? Because yeah. I've been concentrating on the picture yeah. for weeks If I know that I'm taking a picture of whatever it is in two days' time or two weeks' time, Mm -hmm. it goes into my subconscious. Mm -hmm. And I work with my subconscious, and my subconscious is grinding away at it. And a lot of times, when I get there, it's exactly like I thought it would be. I can't explain it. I'm not like, oh, they've got those teacups and everything. But I arrive, and I almost feel like I've been here. Wow. Making your subconscious work for you. I see. So I. So you're in that process of taking in the impressions and working on yeah. what you've seen before, and it's all that's right. You know, moving around in 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 your in your system. That's really interesting. Yeah. So that I had a problem. My biggest problem ever was I, I went to I photographed Mrs. Thatcher twice. I can't remember which time it was. I went. And she had an abscess on her mouth, mm-hmm. all blown up. Wow. And I took some Polaroids and showed it to her, and she said, that's not me. So, so I said, oh, what do you mean? So she said, I'll show you. So she sends her aide off, and they, they brought a scrapbook of her visit to China. She showed me the pictures and said, That's me. And I realized what it was, was the paparazzi, the photographers, all used a flash gun straight in her face, which gives you a very flattering look. So I said, okay, right. So I put the light right in her face and gave her that kind of look, even though her face was swollen. Yeah. I don't think she was very happy anyway. Yeah. But I, I did her another time. 
Little little things like that. Yeah. Or some people just aren't photogenic. Then you got a real problem. How do you solve that? Well, maybe with the lighting, mm-hmm. you could light it in a different way, or the the, the lens you use. Um, there's no guarantee. Mm-hmm. But you see, if you have actors, there are many actors that don't look really nice. They're character actors, so they're characters. Yeah. But a lot of other people, their um, claim to fame is their looks. Yeah. They can be stupid as hell. Ursula Andress, she came and she brought her lighting cameraman. Well, he didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was using a flash. Yeah. I wasn't using movie lights. Yeah. But they're very insecure people because their living is how their face looks. Maybe one side of the face, forget it completely. Nobody, that that's not the look. So there's all of that. I saw in one of the videos you discussed talent and what is talent. And it's a very hard issue maybe to, to talk about. But I guess part of it is to know your tools. You talk about lighting, you talk about lens, right. you talk about that. And then you have to have some kind of an eye, though. There, there, you have to have some ability to see something. I mean, I guess when you're walking around the streets, yeah. you're constantly looking. You're like a voyeur. You, you're constantly... Well, you Sometimes know. I like to shut it off. <laughs> it's true. And you just met my wife. And yeah. My wife's got eyes like laser beams. So we could go out and she'll say, look at that, look at that, look at that, look at that. Well, yeah. I don't want to look. We're going out to dinner. Yeah. I just don't want to look. Yeah, yeah. And she'll see it. Yeah. She'll see it. Yeah. Interesting. But it all depends. I might go out with... If I go out without a camera, I'll usually see something. If I have a camera with me, I don't see anything. <laughs> Lately, I teach as well. I was made a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congratulations. In, thank you, visiting professor. I found out that didn't really enhance my life at all, which <laughs> I thought it was. But <laughs> I found that most of my students that are women are genuinely talented. They have a talent. Uh, women are special anyway, mm. and they're much more perceptive than men, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm. Maybe gay men might be more perceptive than regular men, mm-hmm. regular guys. Mm. But I don't want to get into a fine point about straight men versus gay men and all yeah. that. But women just have this natural feeling for things, mm. most women that I've I've met. Mm. and surprise me with the imagery that they come up with. Mm-hmm. And they don't know how they're doing it, mm. but it's coming from their psyche. I'm positive of it. Mm. They do things that I know I would never think of doing, yeah. and they do it. It actually helps me out. Yeah. It opens doors of perception that I, yeah. I don't have because I feel that there's part of me that's feminine and there's part of me that's masculine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just in a kind of... I see. You know, yeah. I've always worked with women ever yeah. since I've started, so I feel comfortable with it. Yeah. When I work with men, I find it a bit laborious. Yeah. Women are very quick to it, especially yeah. when you're working with two or three women yeah. and you're the only guy and it's on a professional basis. Mm-hmm. I find it much easier than working kind of with a man who might have issues with himself. Mm-hmm. in an artistic way. Mm-hmm. He could be very talented. And I think the more 
if you're lucky enough to keep doing it, your talent could open up on you. You might not have a lot of talent to start with, yeah. but it could open. I had a great drum teacher called Jim Chapin, mm-hmm. and Jim said to me, there's two kind of musicians. There's mm-hmm. the natural and the one that wants it. The one that wants it practices eight, ten hours a day, and the people think he's great. Yeah. She's great. The natural hardly practices. They make mistakes that become landmark musical notes, <laughs> and especially in jazz. Look at Miles Davis, look at Charlie Parker. Yeah. They're just natural. Whatever they played, of course, people hearing it for the first time will say, what the hell is this? Yeah. But then that becomes the norm. I mean, a guy like Charlie Mingus, everybody was saying, what the hell is he playing here? I went to a school concert mm-hmm. with a bunch of 14-year-olds like three years ago. They're playing Charlie Mingus in a Catholic church school. <laughs> and I'm thinking if he could hear this now, he'd turn in his grave. Yeah. So there is also the problem of maybe being ahead of your time. People do not understand it. You might not understand it. Mm-hmm. But um, there, there is all of that because people judge you I think, in relationship to other people. You, you got into the Juilliard School yeah. as a drummer, right. which is, you know, quite an achievement in itself. It I don't was. know how many drummers they, how many drummers do they bring in each year? There's quite a few. It's percussion. Yeah. So you have to learn how to play the xylophone and yeah. the triangle. And it's, it's classical music. I see. I only lasted, I quit after six months because <laughs> I wanted to play in a band and I, I yeah. quit. I think another aspect of talent, I remember this, this tri- I did a ski trip uh, uh, to the French Alps uh, many, many years ago and, and all the people who were on that bus, they had uh, incredible cameras and yeah. lenses and stuff like that and they were hanging up the cameras where you put your, your luggage. So, it, you know, the bus was uh, moving around and the cameras were swinging in the air and there was a big accident. It was a very dramatic accident with a huge number of people mm-hmm. and rescue teams and stuff like that. Some car had gone down. Nobody reached for the camera. So I thought to myself, you know, having all the stuff is one thing, but yeah. if you don't have the intuition, if you don't have the the idea of, of, of you know, being, uh, uh, thinking ahead, what is the word I'm looking for? To be proactive, that was, yeah, that, that was the, to see what's going to happen, and I know I have to catch that thing. I think that's... Well, it all depends on how dedicated you are, because there's different kinds of photography. So... There are photographers that are really very good photographers, but they've gone into advertising and they make a lot of money and they couldn't be bothered to take a picture outside the studio because they're doing it all day and that camera is just like a millstone around their leg. I always wanted to be a street photographer. I'll tell you what happened. This is way before digital cameras. I went on holiday. My camera... I dropped it into the ocean, ruined. I thought, well, this is maybe God's way of making me rest. After the third day, I was finger itchy. I want to take a picture. So I go into a local camera shop on Cornwall, and he had this little camera. It was called the Ilford Pixie. And it was a point and shoot with a picture of a cloud and the sun. 
He said, take pictures with this, it's really good. So I took pictures and it was really good. So then I went to see Lester, my guru, and I said, hey, look what happened. Here's the result. So he says, okay, go out and buy this camera. It costs two pounds. It's called a Diana, mm -hmm. or it was called an Annie. Mm -hmm. It's a plastic camera. Mm -hmm. It takes 120 film, which is big, so mm -hmm. it's better quality. And it's got a picture of the sun, the sun in a cloud in a cloud. And you click. And so I did it. I started shooting with that camera. Kind of worked like your eye. Yeah. So most people don't realize. Here's the thing. When you're looking, say you're looking at me now, you're sitting four feet away from me, you're looking at me. You don't realize it, but probably the only thing in focus is my eyeglasses. Mm -hmm. But your eyes are constantly zooming around, looking at the wall behind me, looking mm -hmm. at the coffee cup in front of me. Mm -hmm. And you got this picture when in your mind of the whole room. Mm -hmm. But it's not, it's the kind of atmosphere of the room. So when you walk out of here and you leave me four hours later, you might think, funny, he had pink walls or blue walls. So you might have get that a little bit wrong. Mm -hmm. But you'll remember the ambience, but not maybe the sharpness. Mm -hmm. That's how your eye works. Well, the camera works the same way. Mm -hmm. but, but the thing is, you can make the camera get everything in focus. And that can give you to make uh, the strength to make pictures that you really don't see it like that, mm -hmm. but everything is in focus. Mm -hmm. And it, gives, it can give you some very strange effects, just more dramatic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's how, well, most people don't realize that the eye doesn't work like the camera. Consequently, there were some great musicians, you know, and jazz musicians, rock musicians, they only work in studios. They're so good that they just work recording. Yeah. They never go out and play mm -hmm. a job. They just sit there, people throw the chords at them, yeah. and they do it. Yeah. Where the guys in the regular band couldn't do it like they do it. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like that in photography, that like some people say, oh, could you come to the house and maybe t bring your camera and take pictures of the kids? And I say, you'll do as good as me. <laughs> I, need, I need an assistant. I don't really, but yeah. I need people to help me. If I'm, if I'm working, I'm working. I've yeah. got to press a working switch. Yeah. I can't just, you know, yeah. here it is. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I want it to look like here it is. <laughs> I was born in Brooklyn, New York. I was born in Flatbush. Mm -hmm. uh, but I grew up in what was called the Midwood section. Um, there was no television yeah. in the 40s and 50s in America. And uh, there was just radio, which in, in a funny way, you saw more listening to the radio than you did when you were watching television because your imagination automatically was put to work. So anyway... Uh, in my house, when my uh, my other brother, younger brother, got born, they took me out of my bedroom and put me up in the attic of the house. Yeah. And uh, 
The bathroom up there was also my father's dark room. So it always smelled from the chemicals. And it would be like if one of your parents was an oil painter, you know, that smell of the paint and the turpentine. To me, that was like Chanel number five. Then gradually, I became interested in photography, working for a man called Lester Bookbinder, who was a great New York advertising photographer. But he loved real photography. And uh, I worked for him for five years as a slave, which we all do. That was my apprenticeship. He was a real stickler for getting things right. I mean, he's a guy that would do a still life of a, some piece of cosmetics or lipstick or whiskey bottle and take two days to do it. Yeah. And I'd be standing there just, he'd be with a big 8 by 10 camera with his head under a cloth, move this, this way, that way, this way, that way. You stand there. Mm. He was very demanding on himself and he'd be very demanding on his assistants, whoever worked for him. Yeah. And I always knew that I would show him my work. He was like my guru. Mm-hmm. And I showed him my work. A lot of times he was less than complimentary. And uh, most of the time he was very encouraging. Yeah. yeah. Which was very good because it, even though I was being semi successful, success is a very dangerous thing. And people. I found that people tell you, yeah, your pictures are great, your pictures are great. They, they don't know if it's good or not. They know that you're being used, so you're great. But in our business, yeah. I had a guy that was saying, this is good and this is no good, yeah. and you better stop doing this. Yeah. But if I thought what he thought was bad and I thought it was good, we'd sometimes come to blows about is it right or is it wrong? Because he always said to me, and he was unbelievably... Good. He said to me, there comes a time when the student passes the teacher by, quoting Michelangelo. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, how, what's he talking about? How could anybody be better than him? Then he came to England. He said that I want to come on the shooting. I came, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Went back to America. Didn't like it here. He said, I'm going back to do another job. Do you want to come? I said, yeah. I went, I, got, I met a girl, I got married, had children. Fast forward, here we are. <laughs> okay, so... That's a life. And I, yeah, no, I, I gradually went into photography here. Uh, there was a, a guy who was the art director of the magazine, and then he was at the Sunday Times. He called me up to take a picture of uh, the three top high court judges Mm-hmm. in England. Mm-hmm. I just remember I'd only done about maybe 15 professional jobs. So I, I mean, I was a baby. Yeah. Okay. So I go off. I won't give you all the gossip about my assistant forgetting half the cameras when we went. <laughs> why but, not? Why not include that? <laughs> well, anyway, I got there. I took the picture. Yeah. And what happened was art director, he laid the picture out across two pages this way, sideways, two pages. Yeah. And my name this big, David Montgomery. Yeah. So he made it super big. Yeah. It's big, bigger than, and then from that point on, slowly things started to happen. By shooting the top judges and all their hmm. finery, that meant politicians, scientists. Yeah. 
prime ministers, all of that. On the other hand, with the fashion, yeah. so I had that whole fashion thing going with shooting collections in Paris and Italy, shooting girls in dresses four or five times a week. Yeah. And then... It's the best of all worlds. Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, it was coming at me, and I, I had to make it up as I went along. There's a couple of things, as people from New York will probably understand. Hmm? I don't come from New York. I come from Brooklyn. I lived in New York. That was the Big Apple. That was Valhalla. But I come from Brooklyn. I live 10 streets away from Woody Allen. Yeah. Allen Konigsberg. We went to the same public school, and we went to the same high school. Hmm. Little guy, Woody Allen. He just... Nobody paid much attention to him. Finally, yeah, see that guy over there? He's writing for those television shows. I think he was still in high school. Okay, so <clears throat> I grew up in Brooklyn, and there's like a vibe and how the humor was. And also, it was ghetto. It was a ghetto. It's, it was a couple of ghettos that lived close to each other. Like I, I would say like I lived in a Jewish ghetto. Yeah. There, there was one Christian family on the street, and he was a doctor. Uh-huh. And if the nuns came walking down the street, you could see curtains moving, nuns in black. Yeah. And the humor was of a certain way. And then the Italians and everybody, and Irish. Yeah. I mean, everybody had, you know, they were like second-generation Americans. Yeah. All the parents, Irish, Russians, Italians, so the kids were American. Yeah. And the parents were, some of the parents were born in America, but their parents definitely came over when they were four years old. So in a lot of houses, they spoke other languages. Yeah. But anyway, so there was this humor that went on, like Jackie Mason and Mel Brooks and those yeah. guys yeah. capitalized yeah. on that kind of. Then I moved to Manhattan. And that was another thing. New York, New York. Something else. I mean, I don't think there's probably still any city like New York. It's a city that never sleeps, I yeah, think. You know? yeah. I mean, I grew up with jazz. Yeah. That, that was kind of my religion. And I was very lucky when I started playing drums and I progressed kind of good being a drummer. And mm-hmm. I was in a dance band and everything. And I had a friend that was older than me, one of the better drummers. And I used to hang out with him in the afternoon, mm-hmm. take maybe a drink. Mm-hmm. I say we had a beer. That was like equivalent to a shot of heroin. <laughs> but we all of a sudden, for us, there was a guy called Gene Krupa, yeah. who was a drummer and played with Benny Goodman, and this guy was it. So my friend, he got a jazz station from New Jersey, which is over the river. Mm. And it was a weak station, so it would fade in and fade out. And <laughs> I was laying in bed thinking about it the other night. We heard this tune called Tempest Fugit by Miles Davis. And on the drums was this guy called Art Blakey. And we'd never heard drumming like this, ever. He was black. They were all black. Yeah. And they were playing bebop. And we were what the hell is going on here? We've never heard this kind of music. And it took a long time to track it down, to even find, where do you hear this music? Yeah. 
and I actually ended up being friendly with an Art Blakey. Art Blakey. And I've got, his, I'll show you when you leave, yeah. I got his drum box in the living room <laughs> that some guy gave me. Wow. And I said to my wife, I said, that's going in the living room. <laughs> and it's got Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. I mean, wow. but so that was like religion. The other thing is the real religion. So I had a religion that God was invisible. Mm. You never saw him. Mm. He wasn't on a cross. Mm. He was invisible. Mm. That is a big difference mm. in your mindset. Because a little Catholic boy, mm. he, there's Jesus. Yeah. There's God. For a Jewish person or anybody else that believes in the other God, it is the X factor. It's an invisible force. Yeah. It's not Father Christmas. He has no face. He has no look. And if you saw his face, you'd probably die. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, I mean, he was, su he was such a force that he's called by another name, you know. You don't call him by his real name. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear about that? Mm -hmm. the, there's two names or three names. You mm -hmm. don't call God by his real Hebrew name mm -hmm. because that's already too close to the flame. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? So you have a nickname. Yeah. It's like my son just got back from Cuba. And I said, what was it like and all of that? And he said, oh, this guy was very good. And they speak about Castro. Yeah. And they refer to him as the accident. <laughs> they don't call, they don't say Castro. Yeah. They say the accident. <laughs> so I thought about it that it must affect your way of thinking that if everybody is religious yeah. in some form, even if it's Christmas or yeah. two days in the year of whatever religion you belong to and everybody is being religious yeah. and you reading books don't do this don't do that don't do the other thing because mm. god will strike you down and who is this god yeah that's this you got the word the, this almighty creature yeah. but there is no likeness of it ever mm. it has to in an artistic way i think it gets your unconscious working oh that's all. I can't go deeper than that, but I, I feel that... That's wonderful. You know, everybody's got a different name. For, some people have images of it, some yeah. don't. But I think the un, unseen... So I always feel, if I want to say a prayer, mm. I could go into any church or mosque or whatever, go mm -hmm. in, because that's a gathering place that people pray... Yeah. There must be an energy there. Yeah. I don't care who they're praying to. Yeah. In fact, I had this discussion with a priest. He gave me, told me to read a book called A Marginal Jew. And it's a fabulous, two big books written by a Catholic theologian. And basically what it boiled down to is that um, he said, look, we're talking about something that happened so long ago. Who knows if Jesus said, come forth, he might have said, come fifth. Mm. <laughs> you understand? Yeah. He didn't. Well, he might have said, go to the left, go to the right, yeah. because he was speaking in Aramaic and went to Greek, then, I don't know, Roman, Italian, yeah. Latin, yeah. Hebrew, 
Who knows? Yeah. So I find that um, religion also maybe helps you with your with your own spirit, subconscious. Because I kind of think also that there's another book, "Used Genes and Secondhand Emotions." Mm-hmm. Very good book. The man who thought his wife was a hat because he had this disease that the perception was closing in on him. What he said is that as you grow up, you might have things about yourself that you don't particularly like Mm -hmm. and you don't know why. I said, well, the best way to go, go to a psychiatrist. But you have to think that you are, like if you're breeding Cocker Spaniels Mm -hmm. and if you went back five generations with the dogs, Mm -hmm. if you go back generations in your family, maybe your grandfather beat your grandmother up. Maybe mm. your grandmother was a drunk. Yeah. Maybe your great-grandmother was a bit of a kleptomaniac or yeah. didn't like mushrooms or all of these crazy things, didn't like the color red, and here you are. Yeah. Smash, you got all of this DNA <laughs> yeah. jumping around inside of you. Yeah. Well, I feel that as an artist, you can use all of that to your advantage. negative and positive. You can somehow harness it in an invisible way. I can't say A, B, C, you're going to be okay. So Mm. you might still be kind of a mixed up dude, but your art will benefit from it. Mm. And that's all I care about. I don't really care about what people think about me. I care about what they think about my work. I see. But do you consider yourself a religious person? person no. in, in that sense but spiritual spiritual, spiritual. yeah i don't care if you told me that tree trunk over there <laughs> would give you the right vibes i'll start get down on my knees yeah because maybe it will do yeah but have you ever had that feeling that okay now i've done this i know this i'm actually quite good at it now i'm going to do something completely different yeah have, have you had and those I, yeah i've spoke to my son about it yeah i said you know i had this I had this thought that when I was 20 or whenever I was and I held my first camera in my hand and I made a wish, I Mm. held the camera and I sort of made a wish to help me be good, Mm -hmm. be good, just be good photographer. I wasn't, didn't want to be a fashion photographer or this, I just wanted to, in the craft, I wanted to be good. Mm -hmm. For better or for worse, I think I've, gone past my deepest expectations mm-hmm. on it. Mm. Not, you, you don't take it for granted because you work hard for everything you get. If you yeah. don't work hard, sometimes you get a lucky break. Yeah. And you get a lot of bad breaks too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so someone was listening, obviously. Maybe, yeah. But what I said to my son was, I said, look, you know, I'm thinking of giving up the whole thing now. Just forget it because... I realized if I stopped taking pictures, I wouldn't have anxiety. I wouldn't have the... St- I'm always thinking. Yeah. Like you say, the people that didn't take the camera down, always... It's like you can't compose photographs in your mind. Like uh, Paul McCartney gets a dream. Yeah. He says that he gets a dream, he wakes up, writes it down, he's got yeah. a hit tune. Yeah, let it be. Yeah. yeah. I can't dream up a photograph. Well, maybe some, yeah, you could maybe say, I had this dream and 
David LaChapelle. He's got these crazy collages which he dreams up. But I, for me, I like to get it when it doesn't even appear to be anything in front of you. Mm -hmm. You take a picture of it and people say, oh, I never saw that and I was there. So that's the really great thing. And people like Gary Winograd, mm. who's my one of my patron saints, mm -hmm. they they took pictures and people say, it looked like his camera dropped and went off by mistake, and blah, blah, blah. But I'm lucky because I also professionally achieved the status. I feel that I'm taking better pictures now mm -hmm than I, I ever have done. I don't care if anybody likes it or not. I'm mm. not I don't even show it to people. Mm. So um, I, I'm finding now that I'm going in directions. I don't, I don't even know how it happened. And all of a sudden, I'm there. Just for instance, I took a picture. I had to go pick up my mother-in-law at a train station in Florida. She came from North Florida mm -hmm. and come on a big silver train. Mm -hmm. That was five o'clock in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, she comes down the steps off the train and the porter helps her. And uh, the porter has his hat on and all sorts of uniform and buttons on him. And the sun is turning gold. And uh, the train only is gonna be there three and a half minutes yeah. before it pulls out, going to Miami. And I said to him, can I take your picture? He said, sure, why not? So anyway, he looks at me, and I took about five pictures, but what I didn't realize was the sun had gone golden. Yeah. It didn't look golden, because I wasn't thinking that like that. And so I took the picture, and then he said, okay, I gotta go, blew the whistle, and he jumped up. And I looked at the picture that I took, and I couldn't believe it, because the gold light, it hit the train, the silver train, wow. and bounced off gold, and it also snuck behind him and came out on the shadow side of his face. I couldn't have lit it like that if I had three people helping me. <laughs> and I, I wanted to say, stop, come back, you know, but he was gone. And I thought, the, ca the camera is so wonderful like that, you yeah. know, that some kind of accident yeah. like that could happen. And that got me all excited again. Yeah. You know, because even though I love it, I hate it, and that it's like if you think about guitar players, which I'm trying to learn how to play, mm -hmm. but there's thousands of guitar players, thousands of them, classical, yeah. rock, blah, blah, blah. But there's only 20 maybe in the whole, 15 no, eight that are really great, yeah. you know. Yeah. And how is that? Everybody's got a guitar. They're yeah. all trying to play like Muddy Waters or B.B. King or Eric Clapton or, uh, you know, but yeah. there's all these other people. They love it. They love it. But And they get new guitars every month and they love it, which yeah. is, I guess, our human condition. So I kind of feel like I've got a musical instrument when I'm shooting. Mm. And I have a book that's pending that I I spent the day with the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, mm -hmm. up in Scotland yeah. in 1960. But uh, I can't use the pictures without her permission. Oh, will you get it? We're trying, but as you know, she's got a lot of other things on her, on her, mind. On her mind now. Yeah. So 
but she kind of looks great and she's up in the Scottish Highlands walking around and uh, they're great pictures, yeah. you know, of a time and she looked fabulous. Yeah. So we got that. And, you know, to think, you walking, like I'm walking around 10 Downing Street thinking, how did I get here? Yeah. From Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn 30. <laughs> to Downing Street, yeah. going through all that security and all of that. I'm yeah. standing there telling the Prime Minister what to do. Yeah. You know, you, you, you can't think about it like that. I, when I'm there, I just think I can't wait till I get home. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, because you're on such a tight wire. Yeah. The best, the best one I had was um, I photographed the Queen Mother and, uh, in Clarence House. And... Uh, so we did it, photographed Queen Mother, and uh, I was so nervous that morning. I didn't have breakfast. I think I had a quick cup of tea, nothing. So we were shooting in the morning. So after it was finished, she said, would you boys like a drink? So yes, ma'am, thank you very much. So uh, she said, what would you like? I said, the same as you. <laughs> it was gin. Was, I think they bathed in gin, right? <laughs> well... I got a glass like that, and I don't think there was much tonic in it. I drank it down, and I got instantly drunk. Well, not, not drunk, drunk, but just like I couldn't walk, right? Well, fortunately, we stood there, and she said, bye, bye, and she walked out, and I said to my assistant, I can't walk straight. And I staggered out. Because a lot of those people, you know, yeah. do it all day. Yeah. So that was that. So I guess we should go. Yeah, we should. David, if you want to come back, we can come back. Yeah. David, it's always a good sign when you're prepared 40 questions okay. and you've only asked five. And If you think you got enough, great. I think I, think I have a, a wonderful interview with you, okay. David. Thank you so much for inviting me to your beautiful My home pleasure. here in Chelsea. My and, pleasure. Uh, and I'm looking forward to lunch. Great, let's go. Okay, thank yeah. you. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation and subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes, if you're not already there, to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2020.